Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music magazine. I'm Freya Parr from the magazine's editorial team. This week, I spoke to the British poet Wendy Cope about her relationship with both music and silence, as well as the process of having composers set her words to music. Wendy spent the first 15 years of her career as a primary school teacher, before later becoming a journalist and TV critic for The Spectator. Her first collection of poetry, Making Coco for Kingsley Amos, was published in 1986. Since then, she's released several more collections for both adults and children, often exploring the mundane aspects of British life through an extremely witty lens. Her most recent collection, Anecdotal Evidence, was published by Faber and Faber in 2018, which we discuss a little in this conversation. Wendy spoke to me from her home in Cambridgeshire during the second UK lockdown. What is your relationship with music now as a poet and as a human? (laughs) As a poet, I don't think listening to music has very much influence. I never listen to music when I'm working. If I'm listening to music, I'm listening to music. And if I were trying to write a poem, it would just be a distraction. So I mostly listen to music when I'm doing something that doesn't involve my brain. I used to listen a lot when I was driving, but I don't drive anymore. I listen in the kitchen um, when I'm cooking or if I'm ironing, if I'm doing something that doesn't involve any brain. Um, and sometimes yeah. I say I'm not very good at just sitting still and listening, but I sometimes manage to do that. So it's usually features of the background to your to your day then? I'm just not very good at sitting still and listening. So quite often <laughs> I would put something on in the kitchen and I would dance around the kitchen. I mean, I've been known to dance around the kitchen to a bark cantata. <laughs> I just don't find it very easy to, to keep still when I'm listening to music. My response to music that I like is normally to want to move around. That's interesting, actually, because I was having a a read of your 2018 collection, which is one of my favourites, Anecdotal Evidence, the other day. I noticed there's a poem you've got, a little tribute to John Cage, and you open with this brilliant quote, which actually I'll read now. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. That sounds a little bit like how you 
view music. I find that John Cage quote very interesting and it enabled me to write the poem. I notice sounds, yes. If you're moving around outside, do you tend to listen as no, you go or no, does it tend to never, be a home never. activity? I mean, I like, I've, I've just got some hearing aids and um, I'm not sure how much difference they make because my hearing isn't that bad. But um, one thing I notice is I hear a lot more birdsong because mm. I've got some hearing loss in the higher um, thing. And so that's really lovely that when I'm walking, I hear more birdsong. No, I absolutely don't want to drown out. I don't want, no, I don't, not when I'm walking, mm. no. So that's interesting that you said that you don't listen while you write at all. No. Have you always been a, a writer that needs complete silence then? Yes. Um, well, I mean, reasonable silence. Yes. Um, I live in a quiet house and um, I would find it difficult. Yes. I mean, when I lived in London and um, sometimes there was neighbour noise and that certainly didn't help. You've had multiple careers as well. You started as a teacher and then... You worked as a journalist as well, and now as a poet. Has has your relationship with music changed in those different professions? Tremendously. Or has it, uh, what, yeah. My work as a teacher had a, a huge effect because um, I did a lot of music. I was a primary school teacher, and I did a lot of music with them. And I went on some wonderful courses run by the late lamented Inner London Education Authority. They had wonderful people, um, music inspectors and... Um, can't remember what the advisors that they ran these courses and um it really opened my eyes to a lot of things i had absolutely no understanding whatsoever of sort of avant-garde music but we went on these courses where we made up our own music in groups and we learned about graphic scores it was really really exciting and mm. i did a lot of work like that with the with the children as well as teaching them the recorder and doing singing the interesting thing is that you know i never thought that I mean, I also taught myself, I learned the piano at school and I also taught myself the guitar when I was at university. And I never thought any of those things would kind of come in useful in my working life. But they actually transformed my working life because I could do all this music with the children. It was just fabulous. It was really great fun. And I've noticed in the background of our video call now that you've got a piano there with some Bach That's right. sitting there nicely. So do you, do you play still? Yeah, I, I don't play a lot these days. I, I don't. Mm. I have phases where I play and I haven't been playing much lately I mm. should mm. how was the the lockdown for you in terms of what music you listened to and how music slotted into that time because it was exceptionally weird for a lot of people yes it wasn't exceptionally weird for me and mm. my husband because quite honestly didn't make that much difference I mean we're <laughs> self-employed writers and we both also both pensioners and so we don't see as much of our friends and um my husband can't see... Well, one, we did see some of his children, but you know, he's got grandchildren that live quite a long way away anyway. Um, but actually, we were very happy and peaceful during you know, during those sort of really strict phase of lockdown. We went out for a walk twice a day, even when we were only meant to go once. And apart from that, we were very law-abiding. It was quite uninterrupted routine that suited us both very well. No, everything was just a, sli a little bit quieter, so you could probably hear those birds a bit better. Yes, exactly. You certainly <laughs> could. You certainly could, and there wasn't as much yeah. traffic. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. Fab, well, let's head back to your initial interactions with music. And the first main question that we come to is, what was the first piece of music that you fell in love with? That was um, Mozart's Eine Kleine Nachtmusik. I would have been about 13, and um, a teacher brought it into a class music lesson and just played it to us. And she just played us the record, LP. 
And I just thought, this is absolutely wonderful. I really, really, really like this. So perhaps I really do. I sort of wanted to be the kind of person who liked classical music, but I wasn't sure if I really did. And um, I just, you know, that was an important moment in my life. So in what context was it presented to you then? Was it presented in a music lesson or was it... Yes, it was a class music lesson. Now, I think I must have only been 12 or 13 is because... As I got further up the school, we didn't have class music lessons at secondary school, but this was a class music lesson. And I think I remember another thing we used to do in class music was um, was sing Dido and Aeneas. Um, she brought in copy, teacher brought in copies of it. So I know that pretty well, which, which I'm pleased about. Um, but it was a different teacher for some reason. And um, it, I don't know, it's not a lesson that requires a lot of preparation, that you just bring in an LP and play. I don't know what Ofsted inspectors would say about it, but actually brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was a brilliant thing to do. So had you been aware of music before? Had you grown yeah, up my in a mother, my mother played the piano. Um, in fact, she had, when I was little, she taught herself um, a bit. Um, and then when she got, when she married my father, he paid for her to have some piano lessons. And there's a man called Mr. Eastop used to come to our house for my mother's piano lessons. And she wasn't bad. She was quite musical, my mother. I'm just singing the church choir and she could hold an alto part, I think. Um, so I was, yes, I, I was aware of it, but I didn't really fall in love with it until I heard, um, that the Mozart. A lot of children come to music and particularly classical music as learners when they're learning an instrument. So did you take up an instrument later then? I took up an instrument much too early. I took up <sighs> the instrument when I was about five. I had one lesson and then a week later I went back for the second lesson and nobody had reminded me to practice. And so the teacher says, who was a nun, I was at a convent school for a couple of years. We weren't Catholics, but I was at convent school for a couple of years. And this terrifying nun said, have you practised? And I said, no. And she was very, very cross with me. And I think she sent me away without a lesson. And um, I mean, a five-year-old needs to be reminded. Anyway, I didn't get on with it very well. Then I went to a different school, junior school. And I think I did quite well. I, I did took grade one and I got married, but I mean, it take me ages to get there. And I didn't get keen on it until I was a teenager. And I moved to yet another different school. And... Um, I had a good teacher and I got quite keen on it then. One early memory I do have of classical music is um, at some point, you, do you know those Wheeler and Deutscher books about composers? I can't remember how old I was when I did this, but they had simple piano arrangements of some music in them. And I taught myself the song Roseline After, after Hyde. And I taught myself to play and sing that. And I liked that very much. I still like Schubert songs. So when you heard the Mozart in that classroom, what was it about that piece in particular that really grabbed you? Or was it I often get asked, you know, why do you like this or that? And the only answer I can give is, you know, I just like the way it sounds. I, I mean, it's very happy music, of course. I mean, it is very happy music. But I'm not very good at saying why I like what I like, I'm afraid. That's what I like, beautiful music. listen to music more as a way of do you see it as a relaxing act then mm, yes yes I suppose so I more find it as enjoyable and I often find it energizing 
And you mentioned, uh, which we'll probably come back to, but Schubert's songs. And mm. songs are something that I'm really interested in, particularly in regards to poets, because obviously poetry is totally interlinked with songs in that respect. Do you, when you're listening to a song like that, how much do you take take apart the words and how it, or or do you just experience it as a, an entire thing? Well, the words are usually, I mean, Schubert's songs, the words are in German and I understand a little bit of German and I can look up translation if I want to. Um, but I think Schubert, I mean, he set some good poems, but not all the poems he set were very good. Um, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that writing poems and writing songs are two different things, really. And some poems work as songs. I mean, I realised when I learned that little song about the rose that I'd actually also learned a poem by Goethe, although I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, I mean, I like it if there's, if the words are good, but I can still enjoy it if the words mm. aren't good or if I haven't bothered to find out what they're saying. So our next pillar question is, what is the best concert you've ever been to? I'm not a very enthusiastic concert goer um, because I'm a bit phobic about being penned in somewhere where I can't get out. Also, I do find the sort of whole ethos of classical concerts is a bit kind of snooty and the way if somebody claps at the wrong time, everyone else turns around and stares at them and feels superior and all that. So, you know... It's not my favourite activity, actually, actually going to live concerts, I'm afraid to say. I also think a lot of them are too long. Um, one of these ILEA music inspectors I referred to earlier said he thought an hour was long enough for any concert. And I thought, how wonderful. <laughs> but yeah. the thing about an hour is this thing I call the musician's hour. I mean, I've been to concerts where I was told it would last an hour. I mean, there was one a few years ago. Um, it was a lovely concert of recording music. I was told it would last an hour. I said to my husband, it will be an hour and a half. And actually, it was about an hour and 40 minutes. They always want to put more in, you know. Um, and so I think they're often too long. But I have sometimes been to concerts I, I really enjoyed. And my the one that especially comes to mind is um, one in Winchester Cathedral, which was part of John Elliot Gardner's um, Cantata Pilgrimage. I'd seen a television programme about the Cantata Pilgrimage, and I just thought the whole idea was absolutely wonderful, of travelling around Europe playing all of Bach's cantatas. And then I heard that it was coming to Winchester, but I didn't act quickly enough, and so by the time I tried to get a ticket, there were none left. So I kicked myself. But on the day of the concert, I met a woman in the street that, lived not far from me, the woman I'd been at school with, in fact. And she said, Clive, that's her husband, she said, Clive has got tickets for this concert tonight, but I don't really feel like going. Do you want my ticket? And so I said, yes, please. And they were really good tickets, probably more expensive than I would have bought myself. And um, I just, I mean, also, it, they were one of the one of the cantatas was Vakit Auf, which is probably my favourite, or certainly one of my favourites. And... I just felt very emotional, partly to be part of this wonderful thing, this cantata pilgrimage, which I thought was such a, a wonderful idea. So that one stands out. I also used to go to quite when I my husband used to teach at Winchester College, and 
they the music there was very good and there were quite a lot of little concerts which really didn't last more than an hour where I could just walk round the corner to the music school and listen to um, some of the pupils playing and they were very good and then you know didn't you have to buy a ticket just turn up and then um, be home in a, be home within an hour so I did that quite a lot and are you a fan of choral music in general yes I like I, yes I like I, I probably the solo voice more than, I don't know yes I mean yes I like singing and um perhaps the cathedral setting as well is a little less stuffy than the concert hall in some in some respects with those concerts yeah I don't know I mean I was used to, I was used, well I mean I was used to sitting in Winchester Cathedral because I used to go yeah. to services there so um Yes. Oh, I mean, Winchester's a pretty snooty place, actually. I can't say that, that, that the atmosphere at that kind of thing in Winchester was um, was any less snooty than any normal concert. <laughs> Have you, as a poet, ever had your text set to music? Lots and lots. Um, mm. The most lucrative was is Jules Holland has set several of my poems to music. When he takes them on tour, I make a really useful sum of money and sometimes it comes, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I get you know, from the PRS, Performing Rights Society. And sometimes, once or twice it's coming just before Christmas and I email, well, he doesn't have email, I email his wife and I says, please thank him for the Christmas present. Um, he's really nice, <laughs> Jules, I've met him a few times. Um, but there have also been a number of classical composers. I mean, I've done quite a lot of work with Roxana Panufnik. And Colin Matthews has set some of my poems to music. And um, Howard Goodall has set at least one thing. So, yes, lots of composers of different kinds. I mean, popular, classical, uh, lots of stuff. Um, The most exciting thing that happened with words of mine, these weren't exactly set to music, but I was asked to write some new words for Britain's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. And Mm. it was performed at the last night of the proms. And so I was there. And went up and took a bow on the last night at the last night of the proms. That was exciting. They were not allowed to read it. They said it's BBC One. We want a famous actress. So they, they... who read it then? Jenny Agatha. <laughs> she was all right. Oh, okay. <laughs> when you work with those composers, then is your are your words already written, and then they take yeah. them separately, or is yeah. there any collaboration? Yeah, it's it's always that way round. I mean, I know Caroline Duffy sort of sits in a room with a composer with the Manchester Carols. I can't remember the name of the composer. But I know they sat in the room and worked together. But I don't mm. do that. I write the words. And, I mean, often it would be, most often it's somebody, as happened with Jules, that he just read my books and found poems that he wanted to set to music and I'd already written them with that. Um, there was a thing I did with Roxana called The Audience, which was commissioned by the Endelian String Quartet. And uh, this was, um, it was about different kinds of people you might... It was, it was their idea. David Waterman, the cellist, had the idea um, about different kinds of people you might find at a concert of classical music. Roxana, who I'd worked with before, was doing the music. And I wrote the stuff before she wrote her music, but I did have to go and sit with her a few times because I was going to have to be the narrator. And I had to make sure it wasn't too difficult. I mean, mm. it was a bit, you know, I, I can read music, but it was still some of it was still quite tricky, and I had to practice it with the recording so I could come in at the right place. And for one performance, it was on somewhere where they didn't they want didn't want me. They wanted a famous actress, and they got <laughs> Janet Sussman, who it turned out couldn't read music. And I think she found it really quite difficult. The Endelians are so nice, and um, Andrew, the first violin, sort of nodded her in every time she had to come in. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, they realise then you actually do need someone who can read music to be the narrator. I mean, she managed valiantly. I mean, I wasn't there, I was, I was there for part of the rehearsal and I could see she was finding it difficult. But then I had to go off and do something else that evening and um, I was told it, it was fine, it was all right on the night. So with the pieces that are written based on your poems that are done totally separately to you, how do you feel when you hear the musical setting to them? It varies. Yeah. Um, and what I always think of, um, you know, my favourite poet is A.E. Houseman, and what he said was, because he got lots of requests, you usually know lots of his poems set to music, and he said, let them do whatever they like as long as I don't have to listen to it. And <laughs> actually, I don't, I mean, I don't, because I do listen to it, and I've often enjoyed settings, and I don't want to be rude about anybody except my poems to music, but sometimes people get in touch with me and sort of want to send me CDs so that I can sort of audition them to see if it's okay for them to set my poems to music, and I just don't want to. You know, I just say, do whatever you like, as long as you don't change the words, and as long as the business side is sorted out properly, you know, they have to get in touch mm. with my agent. So business side, um, if if it's going to be commercially recorded or performed to a paying audience, um, you know, I say they don't need permission just to set my poems. Anyone can do that. Mm. But if they're going to be performed in public, if they're going to make any money for anybody, then obviously I want my mm. share. So our next question is, which is the piece that you can't live without? When when I emailed you, I picked the Bach Double Violin Concerto, which I, I mean I think Bach is my favourite composer, probably. Um, that's the the Violin Concerto also has special sentimental value because the slow movement was played at our wedding while we were signing the register. So um, that's the reason why it's more special to me now than it was before, and I do love it. It's difficult to pick one piece because it's different things at different times. And I will suddenly get an intense urge to listen to something I may not have listened to for some time. So a couple of months ago, I suddenly suddenly wanted to listen to Beethoven's Violin Concerto, which I know really, really well. I can pretty well sing along. Um, and I've known it since I was at school. And I hadn't listened to it for years. And I suddenly thought, I really want to listen to it. And um, at the moment, I've got this song that's going through my head, which I've been listening to, is um, Schubert's Im Frühling. Just completely, because that means in the springtime, imfruling, it means in the spring. So what is it that sparks those sudden urges then, do you think? Sometimes it's that I've heard a bit of it, heard a snatch of it, and think, oh, I really want to listen to that. Another thing, I mean, I love the songs from Mozart's operas. There's a couple, mm. especially from The Magic Flute. I'm not an opera buff, and I don't have much urge to go and pay an enormous sum of money to sit in theatre and watch the ludicrous plots unfold. <laughs> Although, listen, the, the, the Magic Flute was relayed to our local cinema um, 
not long ago and I said to my friend, the thing is, you know, the plot is so ludicrous. I love the music, but she said, you have to think of it as a pantomime. And um, and I think Mozart wrote it because he wanted to write some kind of popular entertainment. That's why it's in German. So I think it's all right. You know, I mean, it is kind of ludicrous. But if you just think of it as a popular entertainment and don't take the plot too seriously, the music is absolutely fabulous. You mentioned that you might hear snippets of music that spark your imagination. Where Where do you hear that? Do you listen to the radio? I listen to Radio 4 a lot. These days I listen to Times Radio a lot. Um, I, I've, because I have tinnitus, I have to have the radio on at night. Um, my husband, he's such a heavy sleeper, he's oblivious to it, so that's all right. But I don't want music. I mean, they, I used to listen to the World Service, and I sometimes do, but there was a phase when the, they used to have these programmes of loud South American music in the middle of the night on the World Service, which woke me up. So I absolutely don't want music at night. I just want soothing, you know, something kind of like today in Parliament or, you know, that can sometimes be a bit shouty, but sometimes just just kind of, just kind of talk. And um, so, yeah, that's what I do have the radio on quite a lot. So how do you tend to discover music then? What what means do you well, have? Well, I kind probably of don't discover very much music. I <laughs> probably um, just listen to all the music that, that I've liked all along. Well, I sang in the Matthew Passion School. There were these things called Ernest Reed's Children's Concerts. And he used to get um, groups of children from all different schools in the festival hall. I mean, I've got a picture of all these kids. Um and we went, but I mean, I was in, we had, a, I was in a very good school choir, but we also, we used to go along and sing in the Ernest Reed children's concerts. And so I got to know the Messiah and the Matthew Passion and Christmas Oratorio. Um, but I think when I got really keen on Bach, I don't know. I mean, the ch- I love the cello suites. I love the cantatas. So I really want to ask you, because I know you chose the Bach double violin concerto as one of your desert island discs. And I'm very interested to ask you more about the process of choosing your desert island discs, because I feel like everyone has what they think they'll eventually choose when (laughs) Kirsty or Lauren calls them. Um, How did you come up with those choices? And I must apologise if there's some repetition, because I've actually been on several things where I had to choose classical music, because I've also been on Private Passions and Essential Classics. And there's bound to be some duplication, so I obviously try not to choose all the same things every time. <laughs> but the thing about Desert Island Discs is that they really want you to choose pieces that tell the story of your life. So they are not necessarily my favourite pieces n- that now, um, but they were things that you know had been important to me at different times in my life. Like there was a little song I used to sing with the children at school because um, I wanted that bit of my life to be represented. Um and there was a Beatles song that I was very keen on at a certain time that I never listen to it now. Do you listen to CD or record? CDs. But I'm beginning mm. to learn about streaming things. I've just ah. got um, a new CD player. Actually, this is thanks to this interview, because I was listening to things. I was listening to something I used to love, which was I've got a record of Alfred Della, a CD of Alfred Della singing Shakespeare's songs. And I do love I mean, I love Shakespeare's songs. I love the words as well. I, that just... Um, but, you know, I put it on. I thought it sounded a bit screechy. And my husband said, well, that CD player is not much good, you know, the one in, you know, why don't we get, I've got one in my study and one in the kitchen, but I mostly listen to one in the kitchen. Why don't we get a decent one? So we did. We got a new CD player and it's quite pretty good, but Alfredella still sounded a bit screechy. What this new thing will do 
is that I can plug my mobile phone into it and, and I can stream stuff through the machine. And also, I mean, I've, I've discovered, it took me a long time to discover this, but everything I'd ever bought from Amazon is on my Amazon Music app on my phone. Also, all the stuff that I bought for my husband, because he wanted it, the presents at various times that I'm never in a million years going to listen to. But um, yes, there's, there's a lot there already. Fab. And that kind of brings us to our last question. What is your current musical obsession? Well, something I'm listening to a lot is... Um, Farewell to Stromness by Peter Maxwell Davis. And it was on the radio, I and mean, I had heard it before, but it, it had it on the radio. Um, there was a thing that the Today, no, what's it called, PM programme did during the lockdown. They played, for the last sort of few minutes, they played something to cheer everybody up. Um, and it might not be a piece of music. I mean, the first time it was a poem by Wordsworth. And then the second time... Someone had suggested, they asked listeners to suggest Farewell to Stromness by Peter Maxwell Davis. And I've been playing it a lot since then. Um, my husband bought me the CD, actually, although I mean, I probably could have got it some other way. Um, I, it makes me, it brings tears to my eyes every time um, because it is a very sad and beautiful piece of music, but also because I met Maxwell Davis a couple of times and I'm sorry that he's dead. And I met him actually in Stromness. I was at the St Magnus Festival. We did, were doing our musical thing with the Endelian String Quartet and then another day I did a poetry reading. And um, after the poetry reading, I was signing books and there was this man hanging around. And when I finished, he came up to me and said, hello, I'm Peter Maxwell Davis. And I was absolutely bowled over that he'd been to my reading and that, you know, he stayed behind. And then he took me to the pub and we had a drink together. And I liked him tremendously. And the other time I met him was when I did that thing at the last night of the proms. He also had a piece on at the last night of the proms, so I met him again that evening. It makes me feel sad, but I think it's a lovely piece of music. Tell me about these Tibetan singing bowls. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I told you I'm not very good at sitting still and relaxing. Yeah. Um, but I, I've always, I had, I used to have a beautiful LP called Tibetan Bells. And you can't get it now. I mean, it's on Amazon, but it's not available. I don't think it's ever been done as a CD. And I don't have anything to play LPs on anymore. Um, and... I thought, well, if I just look and see what Tibetan music they've got on Amazon. And so I found some recordings of um, Tibetan singing bowls that can you can I can just stream them for free. And um, so I can actually sit in an armchair listening to this. And it really, really does help me to relax. It really does. You know, it's sort of supposed to be meditation music. Now, I mean, when I've tried meditating, I can't keep it up for more than two minutes. But I can, with this Tibetan stuff, I actually find I can sit there for quite a long time and just listen to the sounds and relax. And that's something I really need to do.
I had a recording of some Tibetan monks chanting, and that was quite monotonous. And I took it into school when I was on our teacher, and I played it to a class, and they all just lay down and listened to it in absolute silence. I mean, it was magic. But, I mean, I think it really got to them, you know? And I was quite surprised that, you know, on these very active sort of nine, ten-year-olds, this music had the effect that they just absolutely sort of blissed out and to listen to Tibetan chant. It's a great teaching teaching method. <laughs> They're all getting a bit I too much. I don't think you get away with doing it every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wendy, they are some lovely musical choices. Thank you very much for pondering those and introducing us to some really great music there. Thank so, you. Thank you very much. That was Wendy Cope speaking to us from her home in Cambridgeshire. We do hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. Tune in again next week where we'll be hearing from another fascinating figure about their relationship with classical music. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're also available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music news, browse thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Jack Bigman. Music